one, it's Dave. Um, the other day I dropped a little short quick note to you talking about some webinars and some stuff that we're doing to help everybody through this period take your mind off of the crisis you're dealing with right now. Um, hopefully give you something that can help you think about the future or work towards the future. Um, I know it's a super uncertain time for everybody. Um, and I think I, if you haven't listened to the Pivot podcast with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher, uh, Scott says all the time, he goes, the bad thing about crises is, is that they always come. The great thing is that they always end. And so um, I've been trying to do things and have things here for you that'll help you prepare for when the crisis ends. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. There's no clear timeline for folks. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's a tough situation all around. But I wanted to make sure I shared this conversation with you today with my friend Andy from the UK. Uh, Andy runs a company called We Are Wellbeing, and I wanted to have him on because they do a lot of things around mental health, physical health, and just overall well-being. Um, Andy's a super great guy. This is a really uh, interesting conversation. Um, I think that from a mental health standpoint and just a the ability to kind of gather your thoughts and rethink what's going on. It's a really helpful conversation. Um, I hope that you enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, at least you find something that is helpful. I mean, I guess that's all that we can help hope for today. Um, you know, as always, if you need me, um, you can email me, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Uh, you know, you don't need any reason. You just want to talk to somebody. I'm here for you. So, um, without anything else, here's Andy. A, a test. I'm going to have a live conversation based on the pot, sort of podcast format uh, with my friend Andy Romero Birkbeck. Uh, he is uh, has a business called We Are Wellbeing, based in Leeds, and he wanted. I wanted to talk to Andy about stress and mental health. Uh, the need to get exercise, the need to take breaks, you know, fresh air, pr keep your perspective right. Uh, as we're all dealing with pretty much the entire world being shut down and, um, you know, a, a situation that unless we are, I guess it was 1918 was the last time something like this happened. Unless we're well over a hundred years old, we probably don't remember anything like this. Uh, so Andy, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yourself? Yeah. I'm doing great. Uh, under the circumstances, I'm completely holding it together. So uh, I'm grateful for you to be here. Um, I think this is going to be very valuable for people to hear. No, it's good. It's good to be invited on. And uh, obviously, talking about stress and mental health and well-being, it's uh, it's what we do. Um, yeah. Now more than ever, it's uh, people are being tested, and I think it's it's something that we really need to sort of reconnect with. Yeah, I think it, 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 we were talking about this before we started broadcasting. Um, about the need for just mental health and well-being training and thinking about it just in general. And I think that this situation that we're dealing with has really accelerated the need for that. Um, you know, let's let's say, I'll, I don't even want to throw in the normal times that conversation, um, but what, you know, I guess what kind of ideas or what, what would you say to people right now who are feeling a little bit um, unsure, maybe a little anxious, uh, you, you know, maybe confused. Because I think, and I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I think sometimes people don't necessarily, they maybe feel like they're in this thing alone. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, f first of all, I think one of the things that we've got to consider is being able to, to, to we, we, well, as a business, we talk a lot about manage, our manageable health, the things that we've got some level of control over. Um, obviously, we, we, if somebody's got clinical anxiety and they do worry about things that are sort of potentially hypothetical, um, that, that might always happen. Obviously, I mean, like for my talking about myself, I, I don't suffer with anxiety, but I would say that there is definitely jump, some level of worry and concern over the current situation. Um, and I think to battle that and to, to, to be able to cope with that, it's about partly is, is looking at where you're getting your information from. Um, I know if I go on uh, Twitter or Facebook or any, any form of social media at the moment, I'm going to get bombarded with negative um statistics negative uh, information related from absolutely anywhere in the world um about the current situation and i think the difficulty is everybody has become an expert an overnight expert in uh coronavirus everyone's become an expert in in mental health um and i don't know about where you know where you guys are but for us over in the uk health and well-being is not it's not regulated well enough um so people really don't know where to go for the best information and i think that causes a lot of panic so i think for me as a well-being business one of the things that we try and do is make sure that people the, the people that we're working with they're accessing valid information and they're getting the, fa the facts from um reliable and credible sources so that's, that's that's probably the first thing and then the other thing is is, is coming back to basics uh, and looking after your mental health is it doesn't necessarily need to be a really difficult thing. It can be just getting some of the really simple things right. Um, we put out a, a webinar recently on self-care that was really well received. And it was just an honest and open talk about what are the simple things that we can do. Um, and that might start with something simple like self-awareness. Uh, so to give you an example, one of the, one of the questions that we ask on, a, on any kind of sort of like mental health well-being training courses um are you open and honest to yourself about your own emotional state and when we ask that question especially if we're doing a, a live training course the, it splits the room 50 50 you get half the people that sit there nodding in agreement that yes i do i am honest to myself about my own emotional state but then the other half usually all, all the guys in the room sit there shaking their heads because they don't sit around thinking about their emotional state now obviously that has the implications as you can imagine yeah probably huge implications right and so and the audience here for the podcast is pretty split between men and women and it has it's global so it reaches people all over um but i'm gonna going to I guess guys are pretty much the same everywhere what would you say to guys who you know how do they become a little bit more aware of their emotional state and their mental state? You know, how do you overcome that bias? Because as you were talking about it, I was like, you know, I, I've been doing better of recognizing these things about myself, you know, and about like if I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling unsure or uncertain, um, that way I can deal with it. Um, but how do you help people or how would you coach someone to, you know, to, to raise that awareness of themselves? Because it's not easy. I, I know that for sure. It's not. It's not easy at all. And I think well, one of the, one of the things, first of all, before jumping on that, you've got to sort of address that some people are just not ready to talk. Okay. Some, some, some people are not ready to open up about it. And I think it's where some organisations get it get it wrong, 
um, is where they, they, they push and they push and they push and they try and really push people to open up and talk. Some, so for some people, they'll really respond to that and it'll work really well. But for others, it just pushes them beyond beyond um, engagement. But for me, what's worked? Well, let me for- ask you let me, before we before you talk about how to make your awareness. Um, you know, how does somebody recognize whether or not they're ready to talk, or like how do you um, how do you deal with that? Because I think that probably helps with the answer to the, the second the other question. So first of all, I mean, when we talk about what, m- mental well being and the support that's available out there, one of the things that where I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not a mental health specialist, but what we do is we really empower people to. To offer that level of support by looking at three main things. One of them is spotting the signs. So, what are the signs of struggling? So, that I mean, if you take a look at what we classify as neurotic mental ill health, so these are extreme versions of normal emotions. So, you've got stress, you've got anxiety, you've got depression. It's highly likely all of us, if we live to a ripe old age, we will all experience some level of that. Because these are extreme versions of normal emotions, stress, anxiety, and depression. So extreme worry, extreme sadness, we're going to experience it. But it's about being able to recognize it internally. So for, I'll give you an example. So two weeks ago, we finished, uh, the kids The kids finished school because of coronavirus. Uh, they finished two weeks early and we started homeschooling. So on the second day, I wasn't mentally prepared and I absolutely broke down. I had a nightmare of a day. Um but for me, because I, th- I feel like I'm in a good state of mental health, I was able to recognize it. I was able to say, well, actually, you know what? This happened because of this, and I reacted badly because of this. And I had, and for me, that's I didn't act perfectly on that day, but I was able to recognize it, because probably because I talk about this kind of stuff a lot. Um, but I think what, what, what blokes, what guys, what we need to be able to do is just identify what does, what's the difference between a good day and a bad day. What, and what are the things that contribute to it to a bad day? And if we're having too many bad days, we need to question ourselves. You know, why is this happening, and what's happening as a result of it? Um, so once once we've identified the signs, it's then having that conversation. And the conversation might come up in different ways. Now, for me, I work. I've worked in health and well-being for years, and most of the people that do my job, um, a lot of the women that do my job, are women, and. You know, why is that? Is it because women have high levels of empathy? Is it because they're better at talking? I don't know. But one of the things I've noticed about myself and maybe why I think I'm good at what I do is because when I start talking about mental health and well-being, I'm talking about it from a guy's perspective. So I think one of the best, in my experience, one of the best ways to get people talking is without doubt to share stories. Not me sitting here telling you all the facts and the the stats around mental health and going over loads of theories, but actually sitting down and having an open conversation about, I've probably, I felt, this is how I felt. This is, this is my, this is my personal experience. And we're kind of putting ourselves out there. And then what happens as a result of that, somebody in the room or somebody on the other side of the phone might say, you know what? I feel like that as well. And that, and that might be the first thing that gets that conversation going. Um, but it needs to be done, and, and and usually that's the first sign. And then when somebody started talking, then you might look at what the next step is, and the next step might be some sort of signposting and signposting that person to their uh, employee assistance program or signposting to a counsellor or going to see their, their 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 GP, their doctor, and that's and that's usually the process. 
Yeah, no, and, and the idea of, uh, you know, first that coming at it from a male standpoint is helpful because I think that, and I know that probably in some way everybody needs some help here, but I think men do need it. And I think having stories is way more helpful for people than having statistics because, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know any of the statistics right off the top of my head, but I'm sure that they are um, probably not great for the number of people, you know, men who regularly talk to somebody um, who are self-aware of these things, you know, know how to cope, cope with things well. Um, and I don't think the, the, those statistics are going to sway it. But like, you know, even just so far, the conversation we've had, this idea of being able to label the mm -hmm. way your day is going and helping you understand it. I mean, that rings true to me. And that's just a story. And I think that that's a very, very powerful way of explaining it to people is like through the story, because then you can put yourself in, you can have empathy for mm -hmm. yourself. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. No, I mean, I, I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head there when we talk about empathy. I think everybody's got some level of empathy. Now, one of the things that I do uh, as a business, what we do is what we specialize in is um, manager training. So training managers on how to look after the well-being of their teams. Um, and the reason like, uh, where I'm particularly passionate about that is I, I saw um, a post on, on social media probably about a year ago. And it just said, employees don't leave bad companies. Employees leave bad managers. And I thought, oh, is you know, is there something in that? So when, whenever I go to a to a, a new organisation, I'll ask that question, and resoundingly, people just agree with it, because I think most people, a lot of people, know somebody if they've not experienced it themselves, have left a company because of a bad manager. So the, the, there's that question, and and then the next question I have is, well, most companies don't provide any coaching, any insight, or any training for the manager not to be a bad manager. Um. It's sort of like when when people become managers within an organization because they were good at the job that they did, not because they've got high levels of empathy. Um, so then, but then, we'll, you know, it's, it's the year's 2020 now. You know, should we be asking ourselves the question, should having a le some level of empathy and, and caring about other people be a core competency of being a good manager? And personally, I think it should be. Oh, I would agree 100%. And, you know, in the way that you talk about telling stories, a story that I use all the time about this example that you just used of um, you got promoted because of your ability to do the job, not because you were a good manager. Um, when early in my career that happened to me, I was uh, extremely successful at um, marketing and selling and building partnerships, which led me to get a series of um, promotions and new roles and new responsibilities. And I was completely ill-equipped to be a manager at that point. Mm. And so, like, I had absolutely no empathy for folks. I had absolutely um, no concern for people's uh, mental well-being. Um, you know, I, I checked all of those boxes. And to add to it, I lacked all self-awareness at all. So, uh, I mean, I check every one of those boxes you're talking about, and I'm certain that if we highlight these, you know, if people recognize these things, you can change them because it was a took deep self-reflection on my behalf to realize all those things about myself. And it wasn't easy. And I think that's um, one of the, at least, and I'm curious about this. I think that's one of the challenges a lot of people deal, struggle with because they don't necessarily, um, they think it comes easy for people and they don't realize the, the level of work that goes into this.
I think I think what happens is a part part of that is building on your your own personal level of resilience. Um, and I know, like when when I was twenty one and I just finished uh, university and I got my first job, I was working for a big private healthcare company. And I, I'd never really experienced anything before. Um, so for me, having like like you say, having that level of empathy, having that emotional connection to other people, it, it wasn't really there, and I didn't really understand other people's struggles. Um, but then you know, sixteen years down the line, um, or sort of fifteen years down the line, I've you know I've experienced a lot more than I had than I had done when I was twenty-one. So. That level of empathy, that level of uh, resi- personal levels of resilience, um, and understanding of, of human nature, it's, it changes and it, it, it grows within us. And I think that allows us to become uh, better at what we do and better at uh, looking after the well-being of other people as well. Um, and I think what happens is some of the some and, and one of the things well one of the things that I've seen happen on especially within uh, organisations is we can take the, the the hardest guy in the room. The guy that turns up with his arms crossed, who's not bought into the ideology of well-being whatsoever, actually, by the end of the day, he's the guy that holds on behind everybody else to come and shake my hand to say thank you because we've totally turned him 360. And that's the guy that came in with sort of scepticism and leaves with a, a want and a need and an interest to go and help his people. And and oh. to, to, have, to have a job where we can do something like that is... It's, it's why we do what we do. Yeah, and I know a lot of it is societal, right? Because you're in the UK, I'm in the US. There is a vision of leadership, right? Which is, uh, you know, you need the stiff upper lip, and you know, and there's that certain, and then there's the other side, which is like the servant leadership. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we're as we're talking, we're dealing with the coronavirus, and I think that um, what where I've started to come down on these things. And again, I'm, I'm going to be curious what you have to say about this, is that it doesn't have to be either or. You, you, you don't have to be stiff upper lip and no uh, emotional intelligence at all. And you don't have to be complete uh, lovey-dovey, hippy-dippy, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's, there's a difference. You, you, know, you can walk, you can be somewhere in the middle. Because I think the key attribute is like you, gotta be, you have to care about people to be a good leader. You have to really love people at least in my opinion, but at the same time, you can never lose sight of the fact that like, I love people and the best thing I can do for them sometimes is make a decision is to, and, and to push people forward because that's what I'm there for. But, uh, you know, I'm so I'm curious of what your take is on this. Yeah. hundred percent with you on that. So <laughs> it's, it's, we talk Not planned I mean, at all. <laughs> no, but we, we, we talk, we talk about, um, uh, like personality types. So, you know, like you can do all these different uh, sort of personality diagnostics. You can do, you know, like extreme type A's are really competitive and they'll cut through and they'll win at all costs. And then you've got extreme type B's that are really sort of relaxed and they, you know, the 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 adhere to high pressure and performance where they're pretty chilled out and they're, they're more like to um, have a, a, a low pressure job. And, and really as a leader, you don't want either of those because the you know the cutthroat type A will just walk all over everybody and, and leave their emotions in tatters. But then the extreme type B will, you know, you don't really want them running your business because they're, they're not high performers. Um, so it's it, it, so what we find is usually it's a, you need a bit of a mix of the two. So you want a sort of like a, a type A type B personality. Um, 
And I, I, I know from, from, from my experience of, of being employed years ago, was I've had managers that were an extreme type B that wanted to be everybody's friend and they were really caring and they were a good laugh and you know everybody liked them, but they had, nobody had any respect for them. And then on the flip side, I've had managers that have just the you know you wouldn't you feel intimidated going and knocking the door and having it and, and talking to them um, and you know ruling with a fear factor. Um, but ultimately, people don't like working for them. So it's it's, it's it's finding that fine balance between the two. So, but I th- but I think it's in there somewhere. And you know, quite often we'll we'll go into organisations where we've got what let's call it old school managers, managers that have been managing for forty years, and then I turn up, you know, a thirty five year old guy talking to him about well being, um, and it's a tough crowd to try and uh, change their mind and get them thinking about some of this stuff, some of these new concepts. And, and well, how, you, when, when you're talking about that too, like you go in and there, people are kind of set in their ways, you know, how much of that is generational, you know, and how, how much of it is just, it, you know, is, you know, depends on your sex and then how much of it is generational. Yeah. I think, well, I think, I think some of it's generational. I think some of it's uh, demographic as well, depending on where you live and, and the type of, uh, sort of uh, environment that you grew up in. Um, I mean, obviously in the UK, we're a small, small Island, but, that you know, from city to city, the cultures are massively different. So if I'm down in London, um, people are, are pretty open to um, some of the newer concepts. But if I go out somewhere that's more sort of manual labour, a, a more of a, a, a guy's uh, a heavily male um, atmosphere, then it is it's, it's harder to engage with. But, but I think that's where we're particularly good at what we do because. Um, being a guy myself, you know, I go to the gym, I lift some weights, I you know, play sports, I do all the rest of it. I go to the, you know, I go to the pub and have a few pints. So all those things, um, I, I feel it's important to have someone you can relate to. Now, and I, so it is, it is, it is, it is part generational, but I think it's it, there's a lot of other contributing factors as well because some of the most caring people, some of the the, most, the, the people that buy into this the most are. So so some of the sort of the, the older generation. Okay. Oh, sorry. And I, I was going to say too, it, at least my, I like to, I guess, let me back it up. I like to think of myself too, as like being like extremely um, an avid watcher of people. Like mm. I love to watch people. Um, that's why, why I love the huge, huge cities, you know, like, so London and New York, Hong Kong, because I, you know, there's just, you come across so many people. Um, and Mike, I guess the question I want to ask you is too, is in your work, probably a lot of times, some of the people who embrace these ideas the most would be the people you would see that would ultimately seem the least likely. Um, and what, what I mean by that is like, you talking about some of the blue collar areas and like some of the people where they're working with their hands and like working in factories and doing all these things, at least in my experience of, of like watching and talking to people and understanding people. Sometimes you find the greatest practitioners of, you know, empathy and emotional support and being, you know, kind of tuned into other people mm-hmm. are these people that you wouldn't expect, you know. So, and I'm, so I'm curious about, you know, this from your perspective. Yeah, I think I think what what happened. Well, in my experience, one of the things that we see is you go into, let's say, uh, a, a, a production company where people are working on, um, they've got a physical, you know, manual labor job, you're working hard, long hours. And the, the person that 
you know, you, is it, there's a bit of strategy behind this. Because one of the people, one of the, I know that when I go to an organization like that, the what the, the probably never experienced sort of well-being before because still there's a lot of organizations that are not doing anything. So when we go in, it can be quite a new concept. But what will happen is I'll go, we'll go and find the loudest, the, 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 the joker of the pack, the person that's, that is sort of like the, the patriarch of the business, but on the ground level. Um, and when you get those guys bought in, they might, a lot of it's, a lot of it's bravado and they'll be talking, they'll be having a laugh and they'll be taking the, the take, making jokes out of the colleagues and the rest of it and quite loud and brash. But they, they're the guys that buy into it. They're the guys that actually are really caring and, um, and are really likely to, to support their teams. And, and, and I think this, this whole thing, like, you know, when I was growing up, it was whole thing, like, you know, you're a, you're a boys don't cry boy, you know, man up was a phrase that we use a lot over in England, uh, <laughs> you know, man up, sort yourself out. And, and that's massively starting to change now. And it's quite exciting to be, to be living in a world where that's becoming un, unacceptable. Um, because then, you know, I, I, I think, especially from a, a blokey point of view, the way that we hit it and the way, and I think one of, well, one of the reasons why it's, becoming more acceptable for guys to talk and to open up. And a lot of the guys that are will probably less likely to open up are starting to open up is because we've all had some sort of experience. I mean, the stats, so the stats in the UK are one in four of us will experience some sort of mental health crisis um, in any given year. And uh, I mean, to, to, to get deep on you, I've got, so well, so six years ago, I didn't know anybody at all that was affected by suicide. So I didn't know anybody. So no close friends, didn't know anybody at all. And in the last six years, three of my friends have all died by suicide. So when I go into an organization and can talk about these stories, not that I use those as a selling point, but it's it's a real story. It's, 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 it's something that, you know, these things happened. And I open up about something like that. I guarantee most people in the room know somebody else that has been that has had this experience um and you know 10 years ago that wouldn't have happened those conversations weren't happening whereas now you guarantee everybody in the room knows somebody that's been affected by some serious form of mental illness yeah. um i don't know if it's the same you know what your thoughts are over in the states if, if that's a similar sort of situation i i would say early on when we were talking you talked about um you know, the, the mental health not being necessarily as well regulated uh, in the UK as you think it should be. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that's um, even more true in the States. And when you said one in four people um, have some sort of severe um, emotional or mental event each year and they deal with one of these things like anxiety or stress or depression, uh, I would say that that number is low. Uh, you know, it sounds low in the States to me. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think I have, like, I don't have like a clinical diagnosis, but these are things that, like, you know, like stress, I think every one of us deals with it. And one thing we were talking about before was like good stress versus bad stress, but like the negative stress, you yeah. know, and I know, I mean, I've been anxious due to the coronavirus thing, right? Because it's like really, really uncertain and um, depression. I think, you know, I mean, I think all of these things, you know, if I, if I'm being honest with myself, 
at some point I, you know, I touch on or like they impact me in some way. Yeah. And I, I, I can't imagine that I'm unique, right? <laughs> if, if anything, probably far from it. So I would say that those numbers are probably even more, you know, higher in the States because we don't, we, I don't think we even have come as far as you have, as far as a culture of discussing these kind of things. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think one of the things, I mean, when, whenever we come over to the States, my, you know, myself and my, my wife and my girls, we come over, you know, a couple of times a year. Um, and one of the things that you, know, you notice about people, you know, Americans is they're pretty open. You know, people sit down and, the, you know, you sit down, you say hello, you say good morning, you talk about your day, you talk about, you know, where are you guys from? And it's, and that's one of the things that that social aspect of of, 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 of um, of well-being, what I love about coming over to America, and you, you go to some, you, you know, you go to London. If you look at somebody, uh, you try and make eye contact with somebody, you know, walking through the park, they think you're mad. So I think you know, for you guys, I don't know how open you are compared to us. Uh, I, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, I think it's for us as a, a, a country, we're probably getting better at it. These conversations that are becoming more normal. Um, but I think we 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 we're still miles off. We we we're getting there. We're doing better than we were, but we're still way off where we need to be. And I think coming back from coronavirus, there's going to be a, a sort of like a, a, a financial um, situation. Obviously, a lot, a lot of organisations are going bust. So I think there's going to be a lot of financial pressure on people, um, right. and that'll be a big trigger for mental ill health. Um, but I think generally, there's going to be a big mental health crisis on the back off the back of this. Um, and already before coronavirus hit, those measures and those and those support mechanisms over here in the UK were already stretched. Um, I know I've I've personally recommended people to go to the GP and then get um, to to their family doctor and go get a, a a referral to a psychologist. And and the waiting list is like six six to eight weeks. And that was that was pre coronavirus. So imagine all the people that are struggling psychologically. After this has happened, um, and we start trying to return to normal, I think it's you know it's going to be another another crisis. Um, but I think part of that is where where we come in is, is is showing people what they can do for themselves. How can you how can you safeguard yourself? How can you look after yourself? Um, and a lot of it starts with some of the really simple things. So it's yeah. yeah. And, and I was going to say, too, and you tell me if I'm wrong, too. It's like so something like what you focus on. It's what you can do for yourself. But I think and tell again, tell me if I'm wrong. It's also the things that you can do for that group of people that you influence and you impact. Right. So it might be the five or six people on your team, um, you know, because that can have a huge it can relieve a lot of pressure as well, if if I'm not mistaken. Oh, absolutely. Well, so so when we talk to organizations about well-being. I had, you know, I had a conversation early earlier this morning with a company, and and and, and it, there needs to be some level of strategy there to understand how can you how can you engage with the, the wider audience. Um, so one of the things that we talk about is the responsibility of well-being within within a business. So first thing is, you know, what's the responsibility of the organisation? What what are the fundamental things an organisation should do to ensure the well-being of its people? And that might be simple things like having a policy. Do we have a well-being or a mental health policy? And most organisations don't have a policy around mental health or well-being. They might have a health and safety policy, but not necessarily a well-being policy. 
And then it might be, uh, do they facilitate well-being? Do they make it so people can come to work and leave work as healthy as they were when they arrived? So, you know, simple concepts, but, you know, it's, it, it could take a while. It's right. So that's the first one. Then the second area of responsibility is looking at management. So as a line manager, what should you be doing? So if I, you know, I manage a small team. So do I have some level of responsibility to look after the people that work for me? Do I need to be checking in on them? Do I need to have a well-being one-to-one? Do I need to do a, a health and safety, a well-being risk assessment if I start to notice some of the things that are not quite right? Um, but then on a personal level, as a, an individual employee, what is their responsibility? Now, this is where we come back to um, uh, manageable health. And the whole thing about your manageable health is if you don't manage it, it becomes unmanageable. So what can we do? What, you know, what can you do, Dave? What can I do to look after our personal well-being? And this is where we come back to basics. It's things like making sure that you get a good night's sleep or doing your best to have a good night's sleep. Making sure that you're consuming good food and nutritious food that's going to provide your body with a good immune system, provide you with lots of energy to be able to do the things that you do. Um, from a psychological point of view, it's having some self-awareness, looking after, you know, being able to talk to people, um, getting some physical exercise. So we know that physical exercise has been um, sort of proven to be as um, have a very similar uh impact on mental health as uh, taking antidepressants uh, and that's been clinically proven so we know that you know this this we don't just have to rely on medication and drugs to get us through it there's a lot of things that we can do just off off our own back and i think that's where as individuals as human beings we've got to uh, we've got to step up and take a little bit of responsibility for ourselves yeah i want to piggyback on this idea of exercise because um it's like a super drug because you know if, if you um i just go that i want to tell people that the runner's high thing mm -hmm. is real um and and i know that one of the things that people can do while we're in this period is they can take breaks and get outside um and i would encourage people to do it because i for a day or two it was raining here and i couldn't get outside and i was like losing my mind and then yesterday I took a walk um, outside because the weather weather broke. Um, you know, if if you can do it, get outside. Um, you know, even if it's just for fifteen minutes and walking around the block. You know, yeah, um, my doctor said completely that it's safe to do it. It's probably you know, um, as long as you keep social distance from people. So you know, I I totally. Um, would encourage people to do that as much as they possibly absolutely can. and i think I, I think a lot of people get worried about or concerned about the idea of being physically active and a lot of people have this association that physical activity has to be exercise and it's rubbish it doesn't you know that's not the case uh physical activity it can be um it can be going out and do some gardening it can be cleaning the hat i've got a funny story years ago i did some health checks for a company and one of the tests that we used to do was a what we call a VO2 max fitness test. And uh, yeah. this, the, the VO2 max test gives you like a, a prediction of your cardiovascular capabilities. And the lady, one of the, one of the women that worked at the organization in question, she was the receptionist. And her fitness score was far superior to everybody else's. So when I was asking her, why, you know, why is it that your fitness score is far, you know, better than the guy that does the, the triathlons, better than the guy that does all these, all these running events? Um, and her answer was she used to clean the house to music. 
So she put on she put on some music and she dance around and she do the vacuuming, she do the dusting, and she do all the things all just to music. Um, and she work up a sweat, but she did it on a daily basis, and her and it, it kept her fit and well. So she didn't pay for an expensive gym membership. She didn't go running. Uh, she didn't have the you know the fancy trainers, but she danced to music uh, and cleaned the house. So it, it can be absolutely anything. It doesn't have to be um, a scheduled exercise regime that, that many think it might be. And I would say that nobody wants to. I I would totally dance to music while I am sleeping or doing housework. I don't want anybody to come looking in my mirror, uh, my windows, because nobody wants to see that. So. You're allowed. You're allowed to draw the curtains. You don't have to do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I tell you, uh, my stepfather. He told me he gave me an extreme one. Maybe this is. Uh, maybe I've gotten off top. Got off topic here with this one, but uh, he told me one of the greatest things you can do for yourself is to get get a great stereo system. Um, and I think that um, I've noticed that as well. It's like it doesn't even have to be happy music or it because it, um, I've listened to some sad songs, but they have helped a lot uh, while we've been in this thing. It's um, I think music helps as well. Um, I guess like one question I would ask you, though, is because I had this question before and I think I mentioned it uh, even on Twitter or when I was promoting our conversation was this was mm -hmm. sleep, um, especially and like, ha you know, keeping a schedule um, and like dealing with it because it seems like a lot of people are struggling with their yeah. sleep right now. Um, I know I will be tired a lot of the day. And then when it comes, um, typically I am pretty good about going to bed right at, somewhere between right around between 1030 and 1130 uh, every night for uh, forever now almost. And um, I really, really struggle right. now. Um, and, I, and from my conversations with folks, a lot of people are, are having that challenge. Um, how, how can people, you know, what, what can people do to, you know, make sure their schedules sort of, sort of consistent or help, you know, keep, you know, get good sleep. So, right so when we talk about sleep hygiene, we, one of the things that we, we, we try and keep this as, as simple as we can do now. I, now I'll give you kind of my example. So I've, I'm, I'm a father. I've got two girls. I've got a seven-year-old and I've got a five-year-old. Now, for the kids growing up, the thing that's been fundamental to our happiness has been the kids' sleep routine. Now, if the kids don't – say, for instance, if I say to the kids tonight, look, you can watch some Netflix, you can go to bed at, at 9 o'clock, you can you know do whatever you want, I guarantee that they will have a terrible night's sleep. They'll probably get, in, they'll probably get in, in, into our beds. They will um, they'll wake up the next morning in a, in a bad mood. But then on the flip side, if I make sure that they have a bedtime routine, if I, you know, if we feel like 7 p.m., you're going to take a bath, you're going to, we're going to get you dressed, we're going to read you a bedtime story, I'm going to give you a kiss goodnight. We put all those things together. Uh, oh, excuse me, someone's trying to first time me. This is live podcasting. All those things together. And um, and you guarantee that the sleep will be disrupted. So, if one of the best tips I would have from from a well being perspective is, and a sleep perspective is is to build a bedtime routine. So that might start first of all is looking at your stimulants. So when we talk about stimulants, two of the main stimulants would be uh, well, three of the main stimulants would be light exposure. So, you know, artificial light, screen time, devices, all those things. Then the next one would be stress. So how much stress are we under? Uh, and then the third one would be caffeine. 
and how much caffeine we're consuming. And if we can sort of limit those things as, as best we can uh, to earlier on in the day, that'll help us somewhat. But then part of the, the next thing is, is doing something that will actively help us to relax and, and actively help us to wind down. So when we talk about the stress balance, you know, when, when we get stressed, we get an increase in, uh, in the fight or flight response. So what we call the sympathetic nervous signal, where adrenaline and cortisol, the stress hormone and, and heart rate and blood pressure and respiratory, all those things will become elevated. But then as what we don't want that to happen when, when we're trying to go to sleep. So what we need to do is stimulate the opposite. And the opposite of, of the fight or flight is what we call the rest and digest. And the rest and digest is something that what, what can we actively do that will lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, lower um, adrenaline levels and lower cortisol levels and respiratory and bring all those things back down again. So it's about what can we identify that will do that. Now, for me, uh, that's practicing mindfulness. So I don't know. What, what's your what's your mindfulness knowledge like, Dave? Um, I would say probably I, I like to think better than average. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so to, give, to give give an idea then. So mindfulness is a bit like meditation, but without the religious context. It's it's about being able to focus on something tangible and, and reconnecting with your senses. So one of the ways that, I mean, I know personally where my sleep is disrupted is trying to get to sleep. And I will, um, I'll have an active mind. So if I'm, because I'm, I'm self-employed, constantly thinking about business ideas and new ways of, of, of developing the business. And if I lay in bed thinking about that, there's no chance I'm going to get to sleep. But right. what I personally do is I, I listen to a, an app called Headspace. Okay. Uh, and, and Headspace is like a guided relaxation. And I listen to that and it's so boring. It's on for about 45 minutes, but it's so boring. <laughs> I like a light. And I listen to what it's saying. I do, I do the control breathing. I do all those simple things, and yeah, it knocks me out. And it's brilliant. It works. It works a treat. Um, I like the way we're selling headspace. It's like it's so boring. It'll knock you out. <laughs> you know what? Though? It's I I, I I love headspace. It 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 works, and that's the personal one that works for me. Um, but obviously, there's different versions. There's there's one called Calm. There's free ones on YouTube. There's loads. It should be accessible to absolutely everybody. Um, but then a simple way of doing it is just focusing on your breathing. So laying in bed, getting relaxed, getting comfortable, and just focusing on your breath. And and I think that's, I mean, not only is that good for um, stimulating the parasympathetic nervous signal and, and, and enabling us to sleep, it's a great coping strategy for daytime stress as well. So being able to kind of, you know, retune that balance, if you like. So, yeah, so for sleep, it's, it's definitely, without a doubt, building a bedtime routine. Yeah, no, that that's super helpful. And, um, you know, I know both of us are going to have kids that knocking on our doors any second. Uh, I want to bring up one more thing here. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it fits right in here because you talked about food and diet. And I'll tell share with everybody maybe the greatest thing that I've done for myself as far as like managing my stress, uh, man, helping with my self-awareness, just kind of managing some of these things is I changed um, – it changed my diet a little bit about the middle of last year um, because I had an issue with a thyroid issue. And the doctor was like, well, hey, if you, you know, try like a lower carb thing. Right. And I cut out the sugars and grains mm -hmm. uh, from my from my diet. And it's, um, you know, I'm not 100 percent, not even not even close, but I probably 90 percent most of the time where I avoid all that stuff. And when I'm consistent about it, it helps a lot. Um, 
do you have any tips as far as diet goes that, we, that you can offer people on top of that? Because I will, yeah, if not, I have tons of resources that I'm happy to share with anybody listening to this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with nutrition, because it's, it's such a huge subject and because, I mean, you can go out there, you can look at really valid research papers that will completely contradict each other. Most people out there on a nutritional format don't know which way to turn. Um, and what works for you might not work for me and vice versa. So, for example, personally, I uh, I use I do intermittent fasting. Okay. Uh, so I, I I don't eat breakfast like a king, and I don't you know I, I don't set my set my day up with a big breakfast. Um, I personally like to fast until about midday, um, and I stop eating at eight, at eight o'clock on an evening, and that allows me to it regulate. I feel like that regulates my body really well to to, to manage what I do, and um, and it helps me to control my diet. Um, and it, but it's not sort of exclusive of, of or inclusive of certain things. Um, I think, yeah, I think I think from a nutrition standpoint, you've got to be really sort of careful on sort of like the recommendations that we give because even in the UK, there's, there's hard and fast guidelines from the, U, from the UK government on what people should do for a healthy diet. Um, and I know for a fact most clinical nutritionists would disagree with most of it. Because, <laughs> that, that, that makes sense <laughs> and, and i think that, you know what the government recommend is actually not necessarily what most professional nutritionists would recommend um but a lot of new, a lot of new every nutritionist that i know recommends completely different things so i think it's really a bit of a, a journey of discovery when it comes to nutrition is find out what personally works for you and like i said i, I found uh, intermittent fasting uh, works well for me i think one thing that we've kind of come out of is, which was really popular in the nineties was uh, fad diets. Yep. Uh, it, people seem to be, some, you know, wised up a little bit more. Um, so usually when, when we talk about fad diets, I kind of, my, my sort of rule of fad diets is if it excludes a whole food group, um, if it promises miracle results and if, if it's unsustainable and if it's um, endorsed by a celebrity, it's probably a fad. <laughs> but i think those are pretty good rules to uh yeah to so live I, by but otherwise but i think yeah everything goes and like you say like if if, if, if that that's worked for you and you feel better on that fantastic um and there's and there obviously there's things people can do to to really discover more about it uh from, from a nutritional standpoint but my recommendation is i mean my all my i always signpost to, to our nutritionist because um it's it's a real it should be a really specialized area, but like well, like we said right at the beginning of the uh, of the podcast, nutrition and health and well being is not really it's not very well regulated. Right. So I've got I've got a, I've personally got a baseline nutrition qualification, so I could call myself Andy the nutritionist, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it's definitely you know mental health nutrition. Um, you know, all of these things, they probably need to be paid a lot more attention. Um, and I think probably there needs to be some, um, I don't want to say regulation, but like a little bit more um, consistency about what's expected, what's uh, needed for people, I think is probably the right way. Um, and give people a little more clarity, because I think, as we talked about here, um, there's so much gray area that it makes it really difficult for people to know where to turn 
people for the right advice and the right ideas. Um, and it really is a challenge for folks. It is, and, and that's and that's partly what, what we're trying to do as a business. I mean, pre-coronavirus, we were going into organizations delivering in-person seminars and training on all these specialist areas. Um, but what we've tried to do now is be a bit more responsive and, and um, open up all the content that we have and access to our experts um, via webinars. So, so, so that's that's what we're pushing at the moment. Is 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 you know global access to you know a, a sit down webinar with a new a, a qualified registered nutritionist uh, for nutrition and a, a qualified you know a clinical psychologist talking about mental health and you know a, an exercise physiologist talking about the benefits of exercise. And it's, it's really getting people um, who otherwise wouldn't have access to those professionals to be able to sit down and listen to some fact-based, evidence-based recommendations. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, I th you know, I think all this stuff and the stuff you're working on is great. Um, I think um, there was a lot here for people to learn about. Um, for the people who can't see the slide, who are listening to this on the podcast, how can people find you, Andy? So obviously we are on, uh, so the website is wearewellbeing.co.uk been a, a uk-based business so you can check us out on there uh, obviously we're on um twitter so it's at wa wellbeing and um and we're on we're on instagram we're on uh, facebook so if you search for we are wellbeing you'll uh, you'll come across us um so yeah if, if anybody's got any questions if you want a bit of advice feel free to get in touch yeah, and I would encourage it. I, I include a lot of the resources in my newsletters and the stuff I, I promote because I think it's really, um, it's always the right time to, to focus on uh, making sure your head's in the right space, um, you know, and that you're taking care of yourself. So, uh, Andy, I, th I thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Well, Dave, thanks for having us. Good to catch up. All right. I